Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Irreverent, entertaining, cool. You're listening to LA Talk Radio. Listening to All Things Therapy with Lisa Tahir only on LA Talk Radio. Welcome to All Things Therapy. I'm your host, Lisa Tahir. I'm a licensed clinical social worker practicing as a, as an intuitive psychotherapist. You can reach out to me through my website, which is nolatherapy.com. It's the abbreviation for New Orleans Los Angeles Therapy. Please inquire about being a guest on this show if you're interested. You're also able to schedule individual sessions with me in person at my office in Los Angeles or New Orleans. Additionally, I do phone, Skype, and FaceTime sessions with people worldwide. You are able to listen to archived episodes of this show through nolatherapy.com and subscribe to the show through iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, and Stitcher. And I invite you to support my work through the crowdfunding campaign that I have with Patreon. The direct link is Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Lisa Tahir, all one word. And there's also a link at nolatherapy. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. They have over 180,000 book titles to choose from. And as my listener, they offer you a free month subscription along with an audiobook download of your choice. To take advantage of that offer, please go to audibletrial.com forward slash all things therapy. My guest today is a really interesting man, and I've been really just kind of taken by his story. He turned a very traumatic event in his life that happened a bit over two years ago into an opportunity to develop uh, his own therapy technique and modality to heal from post-traumatic stress disorder that resulted from sexual assault. Ron Blake will be with us in just a few moments. He has done a really emotional and informative TEDx talk called Strangers, Hope and Sharpie markers saved my life. And we're going to find out more of what that means. But as a response to the trauma that really overtook him and like ran through his head, the story was running him. He took charge of the story by going out into the public. At this point, it's been 820 days of consecutive just going out and meeting strangers. He has met over 24,000 people and has, has shared his story of assault and his recovery, and they have contributed to these message boards that he's calling messages of hope. He gives them Sharpie markers, and they tell their own stories. And at this point, it's over 3,000 square feet of poster boards 
with messages of hope. So Ron Blake, welcome and thank you for being with us today. Yeah, thank you, Lisa. I really appreciate it. I I do too. Where do you want to begin in letting listeners know about your journey? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess I could start with how the trauma began um, because that's where it really things started unraveling for me. But it was several years back. Um, I was in my home. I was asleep and three men came in. And that night I was held down and sexually assaulted. And I won't go into all the details of what happened, but it was horrific for me. And by the time the police arrived, um, I was on a balcony, my seventh floor balcony, and I almost lost my life. One of the guys yeah. was struggling with me at that point. Um, so, yeah, it was it was a horrific moment. And it's just I'm so sorry. Yeah, thank you. And as time went on, it's sometimes people think you immediately, you know, you go into this isolation, but it was gradual for me. And I just I began pulling away from people. Um, my two symptoms over time were anger and isolation. Mm. And at some point it came to a head. I mean, it took a couple of years before I was finally diagnosed with PTSD and the symptoms just got, for me, it was, I couldn't sleep. And then when you do sleep, you have nightmares. So it's at some point you're just, you're done. It's like if you're out in an ocean and waves keep hitting you and it doesn't seem like anybody's going to rescue you in the water. You just hope the next wave takes you. And so I felt like that. And at some point, um, this was, oh gosh, 20, a little over 27 months ago, mm-hmm. I had a, um, a very suicidal night. And I just, on that night, there was a moment of laughter. On my, I, something came on my TV. It was, well, it was the late show with Stephen Colbert. And I laughed. Mm-hmm. And I told people, a lot of people always would say, well, the laughter saved your life. And it, as I thought about it more, and yeah, when I was able to do the TEDx talk, I shared with people, it really wasn't the fact that the laughter saved my life. It's the fact that I recognized I laughed and I paused the show for about three minutes. And to me, there's a massive difference. (laughs) I building up to that night, I had laughed. I looked at pictures and friends would say, well, you were laughing in this picture and you were smiling and you looked good. And, but the thing is, if you don't recognize a moment like that, it's, it dissipates quickly and it's gone. But that night, the difference was I recognized it and paused that show for three minutes that is what saved my life. And I said to myself, I'm using this laughter. And I stared at the screen. <laughs> but I had like a mindset of an eight-year-old kid. And I just looked at the screen and said, I'm going to get on this show. And I will tell my story. And I'm not going to hide anymore. And, and it, that was the, that's how it all began. It was just a very simplistic moment. Yet I think what you said is really deep and profound. And that we go through so many moments of our day not recognizing, not checking in or being connected to our inner experience. And in that moment for you, you connected to the experience of your laughter. And that's what sparked what I've heard you talk about in other interviews, the experience of having hope again for yourself and for your recovery. Yeah. And I, th- that word you just said, huge. Um, and I, yeah, <laughs> I'll, if, Somebody does listen to the TEDx talk I gave. I mean, in some ways, it's a spoiler alert. I mean, at the very end, what the word you just said is what I summed it all up with. It was hope that literally that moment I found hope. And it's 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 the most powerful thing in the world. I mean, because then, you know, you have a chance. And I said I wouldn't let go. And I held on. Um, and that was it. just that night I went to bed and I just 
it was like I had electricity or just this excitement in me. And I didn't know, I didn't know how I was going to get on the show. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew I was going to hold on to that laughter. And I knew something good was still coming out of me. Yeah, you're right. I found hope. And that's, that's incredibly powerful. And then how did that hope Ron translate to purpose when you, with the message boards, how did that transition happen for you? Yeah. And it was the next morning. Um, I went to bed. I was excited. I had that hope and I woke up the next morning and I needed to buy paper. And, um, there was a staple store down the street from where I was at. So I just, I was sort of going about what should have been my regular routine. And I went and bought some paper. But when I was at that staple store, for whatever reason, I stood in front of these giant foam poster boards, these white giant foam poster boards. And I, <laughs> I don't know how long I stood in front of them, but there was a woman that came up to me and she said, can I help you? And I remember looking at her and I said, do you have any more of these in the back? And she went to go around to the back warehouse and see how many more. But she turned around and looked at me and said, oh, how many do you want? And it was interesting because I never said I wanted any. I was just curious. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I honestly didn't know what was going on in my head, but I was just curious about something. And when she said that, that was the light bulb moment. I literally said, all of them, everything you've got wow. back there, I'll take all the boards. And I had this moment where I saw boards. I saw Sharpie markers. I thought, I'm going to go up and talk to people every day. And instead of like a clipboard saying, hey, would you sign, you know, to, you know, letting me know I've talked to you so it helps me know I've talked to a human being. But instead of a clipboard and a pen, I thought I'm going to go up to people with something bigger than life. I'm not going to hide anymore. I want this story, my story to be out there. I'm, I, that was the thing. I wasn't going to hide and I wanted it bigger than life. And I thought I want to give people choices with colors and I want to make it happy. And all of that was going through my head at that moment. It was so strange. <laughs> like I literally... That was the light bulb moment. That's the only thing I can tell you. And it started there. That's how I came up with a whole idea to go out with the boards. And did you have a sense at that moment, Ron, just the profound impact that this idea would have on people? And that now you have over 3,000 square feet of poster boards. You had an art show. You've been a speaker on PTSD uh, at a conference sponsored by Rutgers University. Did you ever think all of that would unfold as a result? No, I mean, I just, I needed to get out. I I knew that. And I think that was the thing, as I said, I need to get out. I need to talk to people. I need to talk about this trauma. Um, And no, I mean, in in the very first day, it took me, (laughs) it took three attempts to get out of my apartment. I kept making excuses. And I knew after a while, I thought this is, these are just excuses, but (laughs) I finally made it out that first day on November 12th of 2015 and I walked a few blocks and there's a university really close to me and I, I walked up to this guy and it was, that's how it all began. And it's wow. just, <laughs> I, I, and he is the only person out of 24,329 people that I've approached that saw a blank board. He's the only one because every day, every person after that, saw something on a board. So he was so, he's such an important part of my life because if he would have been dismissive of me, Mm. this may never have happened. Potentially I could have gotten worse. I might not be here. Um, And that is truly that moment with him. He gave me like, I had a spark. I thought, okay, I can actually do this. He was nice. He took a picture with me and I met him about a year after that. And he was almost in the same spot. So it was really 
But yeah, as you said, like <laughs> I had no idea what this would turn into. I just, I think at that moment I was taking it a moment by moment, um, day by day. Uh, that was it. And it was just, let's see what happens. Let's see if I can make a go of this. And then it just, it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And I know you, you talk about in, in one of the interviews I heard, or maybe even in your TEDx talk about fear, feeling fear every day, that it, it wasn't like you woke up and I'm so excited to go spend six to eight hours telling people about my trauma and, and such, that you felt fear each time that you did it, but you chose to step into your fear and through your fear. Is that is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. <laughs> I talked about that, too, in that TEDx talk, that fear yeah, I so many people mistakenly think I don't have fear because I've talked to so many people, right. and they're wrong. I mean, because when you fear, I I actually looked up what the definition of fear was to see if I was. I thought, am I crazy? But I looked up the definition. It's just the it's fears of the unknown. When you don't know something, that's that's why people fear death. They're scared of death because they don't know like what is on the other side, what happens. So when I go up to strangers every day. I have this moment of fear because I don't know them and then they don't know me. And so there it's powerful because, but I, I get through that every day. And I think now it's just right about 30 people a day through this whole journey that I've met. So, I mean, it happens 30 times a day that I'm going to go up and have that moment, but it's like really rewarding. And then when I look at all these messages that people put on here, artwork, poetry, Bible, whatever they put, I look at that and I said, what's so powerful about that? is it's, it's a moment of fear that's been overcome twice because each mm. message represents a moment that I overcame my fear to talk to somebody. But you have to look at it from the other side that somebody that's, let's say I go up to a bus stop and somebody's there, I go into a coffee shop and somebody's there, they have a moment of fear too because they're like, what the heck is this guy doing coming yeah. up to me? And so they overcome it. So when you look at it, when people get to see these art exhibits and hopefully I'll be able to take them more places around the country and show people, but I want to show people like that's to me, that's powerful. Just looking at each message as a moment of fear overcome twice. Yes. What are some of the messages that we would find on your poster boards that have been exhibited? Um, I mean, some of them are just really, some people just really short and brief. It, it depends on the personality of the person or really the, whatever the moment, however it speaks to them. But sometimes it's like, Hey, good luck or bueno suerte or, Bon chance. I mean, whatever language they put them in 86 languages. So sometimes 86 languages. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, I think that's the fun part too, because I give them 26 Sharpie marker colors. They get the, any language it's once I get done talking, I say, it's your board. If you choose to put anything on here, it's yours. And I give them all the markers, but yeah, I mean, sometimes if there was something bad going on in the world or something really good going on in the world, they may reflect something about that. So in a way it's like a diary of not just my journey, but the journey through life. So when you look back at it, if there was a terrorist attack on that particular day somewhere, somebody may make a reference to that. Mm -hmm. um, if somebody had a child in their life or if somebody had a trauma, they'll put something about that. But it's overwhelmingly, even if it's something that's bad that's happened in their life, they're going to put something in a positive way because it's, it's that they want to get through it too. So it's, I always tell people it's an incredibly positive message boards, all these boards. So it's not sad. It really isn't. Um, no, it's in the yeah, pictures just, that I saw on your Facebook page. People are smiling. I think it's an invitation and permission 
that's given for them to express in a safe place with you some of their, you know, issues and feelings and experiences that they're normally not talking about. And that is what's healing, is being able to express these things that we've lived through that have been hard and traumatic in a place where we're heard and respected. Yeah, and like Lisa, like a professional like you, um, people go to you and, and they feel safe and they, they can talk to you and, and they open up and they're vulnerable. Um, but the thing is, I talked to a lot of psychologists and professionals like yourself on this journey and I said, why? Like <laughs> in the first couple of months, I said, wow, like people are sharing so much with me. And I just, I honestly <laughs> didn't know like why. I, I didn't know if it was because my story was so prof- profound and it was it was jolting them a little bit. But a lot of the professionals said, no, 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 it's, it's much, much simpler than that. They said, you're just vulnerable. And they said, because you're a complete stranger and you're vulnerable, there's a high propensity they'll share with you. Even more so, they said, than they would share with maybe close family or friends because they said, here you are a stranger. You're, you're lending your ear, but you're also telling them their story. And that, yeah, it really surprises me sometimes how much. Wow. I mean, like 1,250 approximately people now have shared their personal stories of sexual assault with me. And in about 55, uh, 55 to 60 of those cases, they've never told another human being. They told yes. me, they said, I've never told anybody. And so it's, it's, it's like hard to describe. I mean, the only thing I could even maybe come close to telling somebody is like the birth of a child. And I say that because and I've, I've never witnessed like a birth of a child and I don't have any kids of my own, but from how people describe a birth of a child, they say it's just, it's, it's unbelievable. But to yes. see a human being that's been through a sexual assault and for the first time ever, they tell you or a group of people around you, I've never told a soul what I'm about to tell you. It's, it's hard. It's, it's hard to process it. It's, it's incredible. It's, it's so unbelievable, but it's in a positive way because at that moment they start healing in that moment it's like you see this huge weight lifted off of them. And I've gotten to experience that several dozen times on this journey. It's like pretty incredible (laughs) when it happens. It is incredible. And I think the birthing and the analogy you make to that, it it is a birthing from oneself of going from shame to, I think, healing and, and wholeness that they're able and you have been able to release the shame around the sexual assault and the resulting feelings and depression and, and doubts. And it, it just really sets a person free to put into words what they've experienced and to be treated with respect and to be believed and not questioned, which often happens. People are like, well, how did this happen to you? And I think you being a man speaking out about sexual assault is also powerful, especially in today's times with the hashtag Me Too movement where our our culture is becoming finally a bit more open about the epidemic of sexual assault. And I think you as a man putting yourself out there is really refreshing for me as a woman having experienced sexual assault. You know, it's like, wow, here's a man sharing what happened to him. It just really is inspires hope and openness. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.
Yeah. Well, thanks. I mean, it, it, yeah. I mean, some days I, <laughs> some days I really don't even, I feel like almost like an Autobot experience because I keep doing this journey. I mean, for me to get on the late show with Colbert, it's a very symbolic goal. So sometimes people don't know. They ask, why are you still doing this? And I'm thinking, well, I do want to get on the show. Like that wasn't yeah. just, that wasn't, I've spent, I, I've calculated to the best of my ability. It's, it's right about 6,000 hours now I've put into this whole journey to get on a TV show for five minutes. But you know what? I, I tell people it's too. It's more than that. Exactly. And I, 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 I met a woman on this journey that she wanted to run the Chicago Marathon. She wanted to lose, a, she told me like at one point she said, I'm going to lose 150 pounds. I'm going to run the Chicago Marathon. And I forget the time space that she had allotted to do that, but she told me she did it. But she said along that journey of hers, there were people that said, maybe you can do a half marathon. It's okay if you only lose 100 pounds. And, you know, maybe you can do the marathon in Las Vegas or Washington. And she said, no, you know, people are always trying to get you to do something different. But there was a reason why she wanted to do all of those things. And she did it. And, and the thing is, sometimes, you know, I forget, I think it was like a year and a half or two years she had trained for that. But some people would think, you know, that's crazy. You know, why would you spend two years training for something that lasts four or five hours? But it's important to you. And that's what people have to understand is when you, everybody to me has a Mount Everest. And I mean, we each have something to climb or overcome, or there's a reason we're going to do it. Mount Everest, climb it. And this is mine. And so, you know, if you talk to somebody that's climbed K2 or Mount Everest, They'll tell you it's it's so exhilarating, but for each person that's done that, it's going to be something maybe different as to how they describe it, but it's powerful. And that's what I mean when I say everybody has their Mount Everest. It's something powerful, but it means much, much more than just that. It's, it's, it's something, I think the French call it, je ne sais quoi. It's like hard to describe or define, yes. but it's, it's that something extra. And that's when I, when I said a few moments ago that it's, it's, it's more than going on the late show with Stephen Colbert, which when that happens for you, I know it will be, it's like you have setting your sights on a purpose gives us meaning. And one of the biggest things I've learned in my life is it's life is really about finding meaning and driving ourselves with uh, goals and things that we want to see. And it does take on the embodiment, I think, of who we are, that for you to be committed to this goal of going on the late show with Stephen Colbert with these message boards. It's, it's a powerful way to call in and transform yourself and others. And just all the people you've been helping along the way inadvertently from your goal. And I think that's what makes us better people. I think that's what really edges us, edges us up is to choose to pursue a goal, no matter how long it takes and what it requires. Yeah. And I, I, and that's, oh my gosh. Yeah. You hit it on the head. Cause it's just, that's, and I tell people just because this is my goal doesn't mean, you, you know, you have to go out and try and get on uh, Jimmy Kimmel or go, you know, don't find whatever you want, like whatever works for you. That I told people that night when I was so suicidal, if my TV wasn't on, it could have been something. If I was eating a certain kind of food that night and I liked it, I could have been something that I recognized and said, you know what, this food makes me happy or this food tastes so good, I could have concentrated on that. And who knows, maybe I would have become a chef or maybe I would have right. said, you know what, once a week, I'm going to have some new kind of food and it's going to bring variety in my life. I, but then each person has to find what works for them. Um, I found what works for me and I keep going. And then 
I don't know, maybe the universe is telling, everybody has a different perspective on this too, because I talk to people that are agnostic, atheist, um, I'm Catholic, so I believe there's a God, but I mean, mm-hmm. I talk to people that are various denominations, and so everybody weighs in on that night and said, do you think, you know, that was a message from God, and, and you know, there's a reason you haven't got on the show yet, um, and then I talk to atheists and agnostics that say, you know what, maybe it's just the universe's way of saying that, you know, it's just not time yet, so everybody has a different vantage point or perspective as to why, but I mean, it's still going, and all I know is, as I've gone on this journey and haven't got on that show, I mean, look at what's happened to me. I would have never, I mean, if I would have got on a show on the hundredth day of doing this or the two hundredth, I would have never done a TEDx talk. I would have never, Why? Oh, um, yeah. Gone, yeah, I would have never gone to Rutgers and shared it. Cause when I went over to uh, the New York area and did that conference, the people I met there were so incredible um, just at the conference alone. But then when I went on the streets and started meeting people in Newark, New Jersey and New York, it, it's just, I love like going to new places and seeing people now, but I mean, I learned so much there. And so, yeah, if I'd have got on the show in the 200th day, I would have missed so much of this. There would have been no really like art exhibits to share with people. And now I, you know, why question it? It's, (laughs) there's so much that's happening. And then here's the big part. I I don't think I shared with you um, at all yet. Um, For the last 15 months, I have not needed to take any of my prescription psych meds, sleeping pills, or pain meds. I've been off of everything. That's awesome. Um, Yeah, and sometimes people like glance over that. That is (laughs) huge. I was dependent upon the sleeping pills and the pain pills for my back. I was getting to, it was getting to be a blurry line because with opioids, you get, it gets blurry. Are you taking them because they truly are helping your back pain or is it also because it's helping your mental pain? And I yes. was getting, I was getting close. So it's, and you know, for our listeners out there, when, when someone has post-traumatic stress disorder, it, it's an, it's a situation where your central nervous system is hijacked by adrenaline and cortisol and these chemicals that typically only fire in our brains when we're in danger. If a bear is about to attack us, or you might be about to be robbed. These chemicals are flooding your brain to bring you to hyper alertness, hyper vigilance, to make a decision to get yourself safe. After something like Ron's sexual assault, those chemicals don't stop flooding your brain. It is a constant stream of neurochemicals that that make an individual hyper alert, hyper vigilant, paranoid even, and the body can't sustain being in that state of crisis day after day after day. So an individual often can't sleep. Or finally, if you fall asleep from exhaustion, finally, you know, then it's the panic. Oh my God, am I safe? And so the central nervous system is all out of whack. So the fact that you have been able to treat your central nervous system through this modality is very significant and that you've been able to bring your body to a physical place and a baseline of, of, calmness, I think is really, truly significant and very awesome. Yeah. And then it gives you a perspective too, of how much your, your mind and your body are totally in sync because I honestly feel because a lot of the stress was relieved, the tension in my muscles was relaxed. Um, I had, I had been, I've been in the emergency room four times during this journey and they were all because of my, it actually started going into my upper back area, my neck. 
Um, but it all stemmed a lot of that stemmed from that night because of how I, yeah, it was, it was horrible, but it stemmed from that night. And as the stress was relieved, I talked to some of the doctors and nurses. They think what happened is there was not as much tension on the muscles and it started easing up and easing up. And then I did, I had exercises I was told to do to, uh, help strengthen my back. And so I think, honestly, that is part of the big part of the reason why I could pull off those opioids and say, okay, I, I need to get off these. I can continue doing my exercises, but also, too, that tension is being relieved because each day I'm going out, well, first of all, I'm doing a lot of physical activity. There were some days I'd walk 20,000 steps, right. um, which is, like, incredible. But yeah. on the other hand, um, you know, here I am. I'm talking to people, so I'm letting go of some of that stress because now instead of the story controlling me, I started taking control of the story, and that became huge. Absolutely. So, Ron, I'm sure you've been asked this. I, I am curious. Were the men that assaulted you brought to justice? No. The three, and, you know, sometimes if I have time to get into it, I tell people, so I'll, I'll tell you. Um, one of them was my domestic partner of many, many years, and he let the guys in. They were all drunk. Um and I knew them all. And one of them obviously was, I knew very, very well. And that, that was hard for me to take. That yes. was just, um, there was fight, flight, and I didn't realize there was actually freeze. And I, when I talked in therapy, as we went through that night, what had happened and processed it, um, I did. I fought at one point to get back, uh, to, to call, I was able to call the police. Um, I did flee as I was, and I ended up going to the balcony, which, People sometimes will say, oh, that's a mistake you made. When you're in a moment like that, you, you should never tell somebody that's gone through a sexual assault that you made a mistake. Exactly. You know, you're doing the best you can. And yes. um, there were a few people when I told the story, I said, oh, that was your first mistake to run to the balcony. I thought, okay, so <laughs> I wanted to get mad. And I thought, all right, first of all, it's not a mistake. I'm doing the best I can. But I yeah. did go to the balcony. I phoned the police. Um, and I struggled. Um and it tells you the level of codependency I had because one of the questions the dispatch asked, asked me, uh, one, I remember she said, are you safe until we get there? Are you in a safe spot? I said, oh, no, you guys have to get here. Yeah. Because um, the one guy was coming back after me and he grabbed me on that balcony. And then the other question she asked me was, who's yelling? And I remember I paused for a little bit and I said, I'm not really sure. Just get here. And I disconnected the call and it was yes. my partner. He was yelling okay. at me from inside and one of the guys was holding him and I thought they were getting ready to run. Um, but that, I, the reason I say that was, it's the most haunting thing I've ever said in my life is I'm not sure who's yelling. I knew exactly who was yelling. I didn't want him to go to jail and I was trying to right. process everything. And so that was when the police did arrive, they were all isolated and everybody told the police it was just a big misunderstanding and I couldn't, you know, as I went through a lot of therapy, it wasn't a big misunderstanding. Like I can look at it even now and think, you know, and I can't get upset with how I reacted that night. I remember telling the police, I said, well, I'm the guy that called you. Um, and even one of the officers said to me, you know, he pointed to the one guy and he said, he's a lot of trouble. We, we have calls before we've dealt with him. And I said, Oh no, well, I'm the guy that, yeah. And so he, lectured me thinking I brought him in. So there were a lot of moments when the police were there that I just, that was my freeze moment. I just, I mean, it's, 
if you, if you've never, if somebody's never been through that, and especially with people that you know, it's yeah, it's complex. Tell somebody, yeah, and it's it's just you know, and I don't second guess myself. I did the best I could under those circumstances. Yes. But so there was an incident report taken that night. The police did take one of the guys away. Um, but I found out later on, it's the guy that they knew and they said, he's a lot of trouble. They just took him home and dropped him off. And I found wow. out later on. Um, and then as a couple of years went by, I talked to a police officer in Phoenix and she was assigned to me. And I said, I want, it's going to make me feel better if I do an official police report, not just an incident report. And she sat with me and it felt really, for me, it felt cathartic. I wanted it documented. And then I made the decision. She said, do you want to move forward with this for prosecution to see if they would accept this for prosecution? And I, after I talked with a lot of retired police officers and some other police officers currently serving in various departments, and I just made the decision. They said, it's probably not likely because it's been a couple years since the incident happened. And they said, it's probably not likely it would be prosecuted. Um, and that was tough, but I just said, you know what? I, now that I'm doing this project, I, I tell people my best advice um, is to file a police report because then there's a documentation that happened. It'll probably make you feel better that you've, you've at least documented it. You've told somebody and it's out there. But what you do after that is up to you. Every individual has to make that decision right. for himself or herself. But for me, I say to people all the time, if your <laughs> happiness in life is dependent upon the legal system, you will never find happiness. And so you mm -hmm. have to go outside of that and find something else that's going to make, because if we see all the time, these rape cases where people, they are eventually, some of them are found guilty, but look at what happened at that. Uh, the Stanford case a few years ago, yes. um, it was really elevated to a, a national level. And that female, um, the, or the guy that raped her, everybody initially said, look at this guy. He's a, he's training to be an Olympic swimmer and he's a great guy. And you know what? He probably was a great guy. I, I don't know him, but I mean, good people do bad things, bad things. all the yes, time. Yes, you're right. You're right. And so in that situation, he was found guilty, but I think he got somewhere between like three and six months and people were furious. And I thought, yes. you know, here's what I, <laughs> again, I would tell people. Use that energy and that anger for something positive. And that's what makes me feel happy about what I'm doing every day because I get to control going up to strangers and talking to them. And then we're all together creating this collective story of hope and support that other people can see. So um, there's my long-winded answer <laughs> to well, tell you, like, you no, you guys... Yeah. I appreciate going into such detail. I had no idea that this involved also intimate partner violence and those complex issues. No wonder you speak about how, you know, your GoFundMe, you're wanting to travel to all the 50 states to raise awareness of post-traumatic stress disorder, sexual assault, domestic violence, and suicide. And now I understand more of how all these pieces came together that night. And I'm so glad you are alive and, and are able to do this work. Yeah. And it's just, um, like I said, sometimes if people don't have a lot of time to talk with me, I don't go into every aspect of what happened because I know it can be a lot to take in, but it's also very cathartic for me. Um, yeah, it was hard. I mean, that, that was hard. That was hard. Just the person, like I said, that was so close to me that could have been involved in any way, shape or form that night. And it doesn't, you know, when you go through something like that to hear somebody that says, 
you know, I'm sorry I was on drugs or alcohol that night. I wouldn't have done X, Y, and Z to you if I wasn't. That doesn't matter. You know, and I've right. talked to people that years later, maybe they were abused by a neighbor or a family member. And, you know, I, I did meet a woman that she was, um, she was assaulted regularly when she was a child and her father was an alcoholic and now he doesn't drink anymore and he wants her to forgive him and it's hard for her. And she said, you know, my father wants me to forgive him and he's sober now. But the thing is those memories stay with her for a lifetime. And, you know, it's, 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 it's not for me to say that she should forgive or should not, you know, that's a process. And I hope that she someday could find peace. But the thing is, but she, the father can't just expect in this, that situation for her to just say, Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, I should forgive you. I mean, because it happened and <laughs> just, so when people use drugs and alcohol and, and oftentimes with sexual assault, they are involved. But the yeah. thing is, people have to remember that the person that the victim, the survivor, we're going to go through that for the rest of our lives, remembering that moment. Maybe that person that was drunk, it's, it's only going to be maybe a faded memory. So I don't know. I just, it makes me feel better to say that because I've been left to handle the remnants of what these guys gave me that night. And I'm doing a darn good job. I feel like of you are, but and um, using it to be of service to others and raise awareness. Yeah. And so, yeah. And it's, so again, I try to tell people um, in some interviews, some of the media, they want to focus only on the trauma and only on why didn't I ask for these guys to get prosecuted. And I just, for me, it's past. There's nothing I can do yeah. about that. And I, I feel like for me, I really want to focus on the journey that I've been on because this is what's helping me. And you know what? And you're right. You're right. It's helping other people too. Um, that's what life's about. <laughs> it's like I'm starting to realize again, I want to be around people. Um, and it's cool too because on this journey, I've had people that I've met that a group of them on one day, they all started singing to me. They were <laughs> like singers. So they started singing to me and then they signed the boards and I had people dance with me. I've had lots of people hug me. I've had people just read stuff to me, poetry. They read me short stories. It's just people pray all the time with me. It's just, it's really cool. Um, and I get to see the good side of people. I mean, I do run into a curmudgeon or two here and there. You meet almost 25,000 strangers. You're going <laughs> to run into somebody that's going to be a little sure. out of sorts, but I, that's but not, cold. that's like, yeah, it's like one tenth of one percent of the people I meet. I, I think I calculated it's it's pretty low, but you can't even let those people zap your energy because um, you have to keep looking at the positive. And if if people can do that, like I did that night when I found that laughter and said, "I'm holding on," that's it. Because I couldn't put all the fires out that night, but I knew I could yeah. do one thing, and that was hold on to that laughter, and I did. And I think our, our place of power when after experiencing an assault, a traumatic event is once we do the grieving that we need to do, because that's an important part of healing, really being tender and loving to that part of ourselves that that was hurt, to then take it and, and find, even if we can't find meaning, because I don't know that there's ever meaning for some of these things, especially where there's sexual abuse and assault, but to use it to help yourself and help others find something of value, finding, you know, that you're able to talk to people about what happened to you and hear their stories and then document it and then share that. And it turned into a TED talk, an art show, what you speaking at a conference and who knows what will be 
happening as a result of you speaking your voice and not letting the trauma silence you. It's powerful. That's when we heal is when we do what we can around an experience that wounded us. Yeah. And I, I, everything, yeah, everything you just said, I absolutely agree with. And it's, um, then even in addition, I would say a lot of times people, they, (laughs) they think this journey is about me. And I, I just said, it really is not. I mean, if you look at these boards, this is why I'm better. Every night I came home in the first, easily the first several months, it was so critical. And I've never had cancer, but from how people have described cancer, talking about they go through chemotherapy or radiation, this would be the equivalent for me. I needed something really badly. And every day, it was really cool because some of my neighbors in the first, like, I think it was the, about the 15th day, approximately, I came home and they came up to me and they're like, you're still doing this? They're like, how many boards do you have? Or how many people have you met? And if you, <laughs> if I make the reference to the movie Jaws, where the guy's throwing chum, they're on a boat and he's throwing chum out there for the sharks to attract them. Yeah. And if he's throwing it, the shark jumps up and he right. realizes like how gigantic the shark is. And he backs up and he says that one of the most famous lines from movie history said, we're going to need a bigger boat. Um, wow. That was my expression when I came home about the 15th day to my apartment complex. And some of the neighbors were like, you have like 15 or 16 of these boards and you've met. And I started calculating. I said at that point, I think I've met like 1600 people or 14. I don't remember the number, but it was that moment like, holy smokes, you're going to need a bigger boat. And it was that moment that it started becoming so like, wow, like this is crazy. And I thought, yeah, this could be something bigger than I ever imagined. But what was happening is instead of me looping and perseverating on the trauma so much, I started thinking about the journey and then I would go home every night and then read the messages from all you, the people out there like that were signing them. And that's, that's what I said. That's, it wasn't just about me. It was about us in Spanish. It I'm learning from Spanish, but they call it, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's bigger than all of us. It's nosotros. It's, it's like, it's we, it's us. And at yeah. that point, it really hit home that this is, it's a lot bigger than me. We're going to need a bigger boat. That's beautiful. You know, and I was struck, Ron, to see when I was doing some research on you that you're, you're using poster boards as, as the way to kind of show and, and, uh, what would be the word, demonstrate people's messages and their thoughts and feelings. In 2005, after Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, I worked at Angola Prison, and it's the largest maximum security prison in America, largest population of inmates. And uh, I dedicated one year to working with the inmates, murderers, rapists. I didn't I didn't I chose not to work with the child molesters because I wanted to work with populations that actually were could take some accountability for what they had done and what landed them in a prison like Angola, where it's not a first stop. It's it's typically, uh, you know, people start committing crimes for various reasons related to poverty, drugs, et cetera, from their, their childhoods. And so I told the inmates, I'm, I'm giving this a year and I don't want to hear bullshitty stuff about you didn't do this and I don't deserve to be here. Like, I really want to know what happened for you at to end up in a place like Angola. It's not like you typically committed one crime and you got here. This has been a lifetime of decisions to to lead you here. And so it took, Ron, it took nine solid months where these men didn't really open up about anything. And it was in the last three months where they finally 
realized because I put the guard out of our room, the other social workers had guards in the room. I don't know how they expected to do any kind of therapy with, with a guard in the room. And I consistently had no guard and I came up with different questions every week to ask them. And they finally started to open up how many of them were sexually assaulted, extreme poverty, no electricity, just a life of crime and abuse and violence that affected them. And most of them knew that they needed to be in Angola prison. So I asked them if I brought poster boards, would they be willing to write some of their story for me to take with me? Because I knew I would never work there again. It was a hard year and it was valuable, but I realized I'm not really cut out to do that work every day. And the the inmate said, yes. So I have in my house, all of these poster boards, not as many as you, but that the inmates (laughs) wrote about their life stories and the rapes and the things that they experienced that caused them to be at Angola and kind of the hope that they found in taking classes and, and pursuing arts and the things that they have options to do as an inmate at Angola. So I have my own set of poster boards here as well to just commemorate that time and that work which I found really Yeah, helpful. that's cool. I didn't, yeah, and I, I think that's, and then the fact that you gave them that chance, um, people get excited, so that is really cool that you've done that too. Um, and it's, I think you, well, you saw it then when you give people the chance and they're like, hey, you can put this on here. There's something, and I said that in a TEDx talk, there's something incredibly magical at some point. Well, because I, I bring out a lot of the Sharpies, but people really get excited that, hey, first of all, I can put my message on something because I think, honestly, a lot of people just want to be recognized. They want to, they want to know that, hey, I left my mark or I, everybody's got a story to tell, too. So um, the fact that they did that at Angola and, and people do it with mine, it's, I think it just it helps sum up that people want to be recognized. They have a story to tell. But the exciting part I know when I go out is I, <laughs> I throw these 26 Sharpie markers down. I said it's incredibly magical because I will watch adults like they'll be sometimes in business suits and business you know clothes and yeah um and i drop all these sharpies down and they become like eight-year-old kids because it opens up like this creative side in them too and and they just want to tell something and so that's wow it's and even in um oh there were some filmmakers that followed me around uh some students at arizona state university and they produced a documentary um, they actually got nominated for an Emmy. I always like saying that because That's these awesome. guys worked really hard and I knew nothing about, I met them on my journey and they contacted me days later and said, can we do a documentary about you? We have to do a capstone project for our school. Um, and I said, yeah. And so they did an amazing job. So I always like to give them a plug, but That's in the awesome. documentary, they got to see what I see or like what you saw at Angola. Like, you know, you go up to people, you give them a chance to express themselves and it is really cool. Um, so anytime that you can take people on a journey with you and then they can see what you're seeing every day, it's amazing. So yeah, like if your listeners wanted to see it, it's called, um, the Blake project on YouTube and it's, it's powerful and it's just, it's really emotional too, because as I look back and I watch parts of it, I remember where we were at on that particular day or week or month. And it's really cool to see, again, like people get to see what I see every day and, and then what you like, what you would have seen in Angola, like that fact that you talk to these folks and, and they share back with you. So it's, it's really yes. powerful. And so Ron, to end our show, I wanted you to let listeners know if, how they can reach you, if they want to interview you or how we can help you get on the late show with Stephen Colbert. I, I know you have Blake late show on Facebook and Instagram. What are your preferred methods of people reaching out? Should they want to? 
Yeah. I mean, those would be the best um, on Facebook or Instagram because people can message and um, yeah, it's just Blake late show on there. Um, I mean, if people did want to help, I, <laughs> I don't really push this too much and people told me I should, um, uh, I've never wanted this to be about money, but yeah, I definitely want to travel. I've been to eight States with this project. I, I mean, there's a GoFundMe called Blake late show. I mean, okay, good. I can get Blake more late money. Show. I can, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I could get some more places around the country, but that would be amazing. Cause I do get people that said, why don't you come to my state or my city? And it's like, well, if I had the money, I would go. But, um, but I mean, other than that, I mean, if somebody would even Google my name, Ron Blake and put PTSD or sexual assault, there's a lot of information that comes up and sometimes, yes. I mean, but the preferred methods would be Facebook and Instagram where people could just go to Blake late show and it's really cool. And people I've taken pictures with about 4,000 people and it's just, sometimes it's really just neat to see the people that I've been meeting all over the country. So it's, it's, it's more than me. And I think when people see this, they're going to see it's, it's about us and it's really cool. (laughs) Well, I want to thank you for your courage to speak out about this and to continue to do so every single day. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for letting me share Lisa. Um, You're welcome. Me. It's I, I love sharing stories about everybody I meet and things that happen. It's just, I didn't have all this to talk about 27 months ago. So I appreciate the, the fact that you let me come on and share. So thank you. You are very welcome. And I'll send you the show later on. All right. You take care. Thanks again. I will. You too. Bye. All right. Bye. That concludes my show today with Ron Blake of Blake Late Show. You can find him on Facebook and Instagram. And he has a GoFundMe campaign titled Blake Late Show also. I hope everybody has a great week. Happy Mardi Gras. If you celebrate Mardi Gras, we are in full swing down here in New Orleans. Join me next week for another show. And as always, I am sponsored by Audible. They offer you over 180,000 book titles to choose from. I am currently listening to uh, Judgment Detox by Gabrielle Bernstein. And to get your free audiobook download and month subscription, go to audibletrial.com forward slash all things therapy. Bye-bye. You're listening to All Things Therapy with Lisa Tahir, only on LA Talk Radio. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.